0: What is an open source vaccine? How are vaccine and beer production similar? Are DIY vaccine starter kits the best strategy to vaccinate the world? On Bonku, the host of Design Lab, it's a show where we explore the question, how might we design healthier lives? Today's guest is Dr. Maria Elena Potazzi. She is an internationally recognized tropical and emerging disease vaccinologist, global health advocate, and co-creator of a patent-free, open-source COVID-19 vaccine technology that led to the development of Corbivax, a COVID-19 vaccine for the world. Maria Elena pioneers and leads innovative partnerships for the advancement of a robust vaccine development portfolio. She tackles diseases that disproportionately affect the world's poorest populations. She has made significant contributions to catalyze policies and disseminate science information to reach a diverse set of audiences. This year, alongside her colleague, vaccine researcher, Peter Hotez, she was nominated by Congresswoman Lizzie Fletcher of Texas for the Nobel Peace Prize. Nothing gets me more excited when a listener gives us an awesome review on Apple Podcasts. Jean Dashty wrote, the wide variety of guests and topics always leaves me with new ideas. And a number of I never thought of before moments. Gene listens to Design Lab during a walk around the neighborhood or biking on the trails. This means a lot to me. Feedback like this energizes and encourages us. Every week I'm recording in my home studio, speaking into this mic. And sometimes I wonder if people are actually enjoying the show and benefiting from it. So thank you Gene-D for that review. And if you haven't done so already, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or give us five stars on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and tell a friend about the show. Now, here's my conversation with Dr. Maria Elena Patazzi. Dr. Maria Elena Patazzi, welcome to Design Lab.
1: Oh, thank you for having me, it's beyond a pleasure.
0: I've been following your story of you creating an open-source vaccine. I think it's incredible. Can you talk about what does open-source vaccines mean?
1: Well, for us, meaning uh, our vaccine center and certainly our philosophy has been to everything that we do be open science, right? Meaning, therefore, that we publish everything mm-hmm. for with the aspiration that others can learn from it. But at the same time, we share beyond just the publications, you know, our knowledge, our reagents, our data, and therefore at some point being open source, where if someone really wants to learn how to do it, they could even call us and say, you know, but, you know, I don't want to start from scratch. Can you just help me out and, you know, give me a jump start, right? Mm. And so I think it's a combination of this concept of like everything now, it's, mostly with the attempt of gearing to publish everything also Mm -hmm. publish the the good things the experiments that didn't work right i think we have to always remember that it's not always uh, nice to just publish the things that work because publishing the things that don't work you know it's good because then others don't redo the things that didn't work right yeah Um, and then let let us, you know, bridge those collaborations so that we can access more people in this journey of all learning from science.
0: Mm. And I love how you describe it as open source, because that's a principle that began with computer code. And what's great about open source is like anyone could modify it. The design is publicly available, but our healthcare system in the U.S. is a closed system. So many things are proprietary, like the electronic health record systems. and, And I think because it's a closed system that's not open source, there's like winners and losers. And and the losers are often um, low-income populations or minorities in this country. And we've seen that with our healthcare system and the vaccine distribution. And I was curious to get your thoughts on the other COVID-19 vaccines, are they open source?
1: You know, some more than others, right? Because of course, you know, you can look at the fact that you know, we, for example, ourselves had already been working on RNA vaccine technology, right? Mm -hmm. And there are, you know, the papers, the research out there that could at some level enable you to um, dabble in your laboratories and work with it. Like, except that maybe, yes, some of the access to some of the tools, whether it's equipment, whether it's reagents, may be proprietary and that's what limits how much you can sometimes replicate something that it's published and the cost right you know that you have to invest into not only the personnel but you know certainly the reagents. So so I think we have a spectrum right We have a mm. spectrum of accessibility and availability within any given technology, right? We could also make a protein-based technology quite uh, secretive uh, using techniques or reagents that are proprietary by, you know, maybe using sophisticated Mm -hmm. resins that, you know, it would cost you a lot to acquire Mm -hmm. or that, you know, there would be more difficult to get access, you know, including some of the, the seed banks, right? The fact that we use yeast, which even though, of course, it it has a proprietary behind it, but it's now much more generic. They're more open to be accessible. And so it's really a balance, right, Mm. I think. And that's what then this balance has to be put forth in a way that in locations that there are other challenges, right, monetary challenges, access to the reagents, the distribution Mm. of equipments, you know, the infrastructure of the research, you know, institutions, that you give them at least an option that they can be, like you said, that anybody then can tinker mm. with them so that they could be adapted for their need and their use.
0: Mm. In doing my research for this interview, you had a great analogy. You said this uh, vaccine that you developed uses pretty old school technology like yeast. It's And you reference it's kind of like how you make beer. Is that correct? For yeah. <laughs> explain something. it to our audience who has no idea how a vaccine is made
1: it, It's true, right? So if you are an avid not only beer drinker but maybe even you're there's a lot of interest now of microbreweries right uh-huh. even you can even make beer in your house nowadays, right, and what uh-huh. does that mean you have you of course have a producer of in the beer is of course the alcohol right, which in this case it may be. You know, in some other alcoholic drinks, maybe barley, maybe right. You always uh-huh. use some producer, right? That uses this concept of fermentation, right? That they basically, you know, are you know either secreting these alcohols. In our case, there's of course very specific engineered uh, yeast mm-hmm. with very specific vectors that you make the yeast produce proteins. And we even make, make them in a way that they are secreted, meaning that we don't even have to worry about breaking this mm. yeast and extracting it from all the, the components of the yeast. So they're very easy to then purify and divide, right? You know, what is what the protein that we want versus what we don't want, which is all the residuals of the yeast. But then you make them in the same pretty much those big stainless steel tanks that you see in a factory of brewing beer, right? You brew the yeast and the yeast loves, you know, good food, right? So you give them nutrients and you give them, you know, ways that they are very happy. And as much as they grow, they are then secreting this protein. And so they can make them in really, I would say, buckets of Mm. proteins. That's why from a yeast, you can get grams and grams of proteins. Of course, then there's all the purification aspects of how you purify and make it, of course, you know, of high quality. But then protein-based vaccines really rely on what we call formulation science. Mm. It's what else do you pair these vaccine proteins with. Mm-hmm. So clearly you have to have a buffering agents to make them stable. Usually also very simple. They're just, you know, reagents or solutions that keep them happy as proteins, mm-hmm. but then you add them with these adjuvants, which are really the ones who help the protein target your immune response in the way that you want, right? If you want them to produce a lot of Antibodies. You use certain types of adjuvants if you want to also activate other cellular immunological components. You know you use other immunostimulants, and Mm. that's the magic of the protein-based vaccines. Is the protein paired with a very nice formulation science behind it?
0: Mm. These protein-based vaccines. I bet you everyone listening has had probably a protein-based vaccine, right? The hepatitis vaccine is a protein. Based vaccine.
1: You're right. So protein-based vaccines have been used for now more than probably four or five decades. And so they come with, therefore, a relatively robust ecosystem of producers. So many vaccine manufacturers know how to make these protein mm-hmm. vaccines. Like you said it, right? Anybody around the world that can make hepatitis B can make this COVID-19 vaccine that Mm. we developed. And therefore we did it on purpose, right? Mm. That's the reason why we said, if you need a vaccine that needs to be made in large quantities and that could reach many areas around the world, who can do this? And therefore who are the manufacturers out there that could adopt this very quickly? And we said, those who make hepatitis B. So we modeled our procedures Mm to be as similar as possible to how you make hepatitis B um, so that they don't have to buy new reagents, build new factories, train mm. new people, and that they would already have an infrastructure of doing it very quickly. Mm. And
0: I, I love this beer analogy. So let's get back to that. So you are mm-hmm. pretty much have created a vaccine starter brewing kit. For these other companies that they can use, right? So it's kind of like if you're looking to buy beer, you could either go straight to a big global company like Budweiser and buy one of their beers, but you know, they have to, they make it, they distribute it versus, hey, here's a starter kit. You could brew your own beer, label it as your own, and it's probably much cheaper to do that.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, funny enough, that's exactly what we do, right? We say, look, it's published and you can come up and figure out it yourself. Or we actually send you a starter kit box and inside that box, you're going to get, you know, the seed, the yeast seed already with the appropriate, you know, protein construct, you know, and now we have all flavors of protein constructs, right? from all the variants of concern of COVID-19. We even have a starter kit for a SARS vaccine. We have a starter kit for a MERS vaccine. Now, of course, as you know, we have starter kits for our neglected disease vaccines. So we have all these starter kits, but then beyond that is, and we say, and here's a box link, or a Dropbox link uh-huh. with all the recipes, uh, reports, records, data um, that we already did so that you sometimes don't have to really redo it again. And then we give you a Zoom link. And if you need, call us. We can help. You know, If you want us, we can join in the effort together. We can do experiments together. We can review your data. We can you can ask us to do some experiments. And so that's pretty much it, a box, a drop box and a Zoom link.
0: <laughs> I love that. So this vaccine could be called the CorbaVax uh, vaccine. And why did you create that? We already have the Pfizer, the Moderna, this high-tech mRNA vaccines. So what's the big deal about your vaccine?
1: Well, first of all, the Corbivax, which actually is the name that Biological E gave to their vaccine, because as you said, once we transfer the starter kit, ultimately the vaccine is not ours, right? The vaccine is, of course, the company's. And then in this case, Biological E made a pledge that their vaccine, Corbivax, would be a vaccine that would be for the world. So Mm. you all, of course, have to then find your like-minded partners right that they would like to have the same philosophy like you and and similar how we did it now with bioe which is Corbivax, we are now working with indonesia and biopharma who eventually will call it something else but it will of course have the same aspiration and Mm -hmm. eventually indonesia we did it also with bangladesh and now we're working in africa but why right why Why would they even be interested and why were we interested? Yeah, why don't
0: they just get the Pfizer or the Moderna one?
1: Right. And at the beginning, maybe many of them ultimately also did that, right? So, for example, Biological E does work with Johnson & Johnson because they wanted to also play in helping produce the j vaccine. They are certainly learning how to make RNA vaccines because everybody now needs to learn that technology. BioPharma has been working with other you know, vaccine manufacturers too. But there's a couple of aspects that I wanna bring up. One is the fact that I think many of us, not a lot of us, but many of us recognize that ultimately, The COVID 19 was creating this huge inequity gap in access. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that, as much as we wish that you could make a lot of these RNA vaccines or even viral vector vaccines, they are just not enough to arrive Mm -hmm. to all the populations. So, and we see it, we saw it from very early on that they were costly, they were not enough, and we were leaving behind many people. And even if COVAX, you know, the mechanism that tried to equalize the distribution, Mm -hmm. they said, we can really only afford to provide what? Maybe 10% of vaccine doses across the board. And and, and
0: especially now when we're already thinking about, hey, getting the fourth vaccine.
1: Exactly. right? Right. But then the second aspect that I think it's the re- real reason why we think these vaccine manufacturers such as BioE, such as Biopharma, such as Bangladesh, and now Africa are interested is the model of vaccine development always assume that multinationals are the ones who really should take the charge. Mm-hmm. And once the maturity of the technology is developed by these big multinationals, the developing country manufacturers can follow on and receive a technology that was already way mature, and therefore they just have to replicate it and reproduce it, mm. kind of like as a handoff. Mm. A handoff from the multinational, handed it off to a, a developing country manufacturer. And the example for COVID is quite important too, right? Where AstraZeneca decided that. AstraZeneca vaccine, which is, of course, a collaboration with Oxford, was produced in India by Serum Institute, produced in Korea by SK Biosciences, mm. produced in Argentina and Mexico, right? But it's a follow-on. It's I'm handing it over from a big multinational to a, a developing country producer. Mm. What we did is something very different, is we made BioE create from practically scratch even though we Mm. gave them a starter kit with you know starting information create their own indigenous vaccine Mm. with no involvement from any multinational so it's considered their own product Mm. therefore first rate innovator Mm. but they basically now are arguably almost a multinational because Mm. they have their own it's indigenous and that you know, gives a sense of, you know, proudness, you know, to also say India has their own indigenous vaccine, Mm. even though you can always play in the global space with these other multinational, I guess, business practices, but more and more we need to give the accountability and the responsibility and therefore the benefit of these vaccine corporations to play in the same level of Mm. importance and be recognized. And for that to happen, we also not only need to decolonize the vaccine development process with like this example that I just Mm. explained that we were successful with, but it has to also come together with the fact that then we have to decolonize the regulatory system. We have to decolonize who funds these processes who and how clinical trials are done. Mm. So it's the entire ecosystem that needs to change. Mm.
0: I've never heard of that term of decolonizing vaccines. It's fascinating to think about it. What had inspired you and your colleagues to decolonize vaccines?
1: Well, I think me personally, it's the fact that as you know, I grew up in Honduras, so I'm a, you know, Honduran, a small country with many difficulties, always with the fact that we have this perception that countries like ours has to always wait for someone else to come and solve our problems. Mm. And that we inherently are not suited to be creative enough and establish auto-sufficiency. We have a lot of resilience, but we know we we have a hard time creating autosufficiency, Mm. not only locally, but even maybe even regionally. And we now saw that through the COVID-19, that therefore we were kind of like sitting, twirling our fingers until someone decided that we were ready to receive a donated or a a product or a solution, whether Mm. it's medicines, diagnostics, or vaccines until someone else decided that they either had some leftovers to give Mm. us or that it, of course, was pre-agreed that, you know, we were going to receive an allotment, but that allotment would have to wait until it was ready to be given to us. And I think that is not only in the area of vaccines, but there's many things in this world that the high-income countries, the global north, at some level, even though there's, you know, Programs that you know help. We've had many programs that always help the global south, but we're always handing over things rather than teaching them how to fish and create mm. their own solutions. So I think again, is this notion of can we build as a structure where we can collaborate that we can learn from? Of course, the high technologies that certainly do come many times from the high-income countries, but can we therefore then adapt them to then be locally and regionally produced and developed? And let also give some authority to the regions Mm. to say, you know, I really don't want to do this. I want to do it this way because this is how I think I can solve my problem and enable them and give them the tools and give them the, the skills and train them so that they can do them by themselves.
0: I love that design principle when creating uh, this vaccine. Empower, or you're co-designing it with countries. And it's just not a couple of main distributors for the vaccine. And I want to talk about this truly extraordinary journey that you and your lab had to develop this vaccine because you are not billionaires, right? Like the, you know, (laughs) Pfizer got... 10 billion dollars from the US government. And I'm sure your lab, your small lab did not get billions of dollars to make this vaccine. I mean, it's truly like a David versus Goliath type of story. You know, the, the CEO of Pfizer got $24 million last year in compensation. Like, how did your lab create this, an academic medical center or you know, a university, which is extraordinary?
1: With a lot of sleepless nights, (laughs) for sure. But no, to be serious, look, you know, at some level, the power of being in Texas, because we have to recognize that, you know, our center actually was 10 years in the DC area before moving to, you know, the medical center and being in Texas. And I honestly tell you that if we would have still be up in the Northeast, we probably would not have been as successful.
0: Really? Why?
1: Well, for a couple of reasons. Right? One, because our institutions were also very well aligned with our philosophy, that they themselves also were not interested in making the big bucks. Mm. And therefore they invested in us when we were brought down here. And you know, and very specifically Speaking for you know Baylor College of Medicine in Texas, so they saw something in us hmm. that clearly was not going to make them big bucks, but they clearly were with the aspiration that we are here to not only train the next generation, but certainly also bring healthcare to those who needed, especially you know children, you know hmm. around the world. But second is the philanthropic nature of the city and the state, uh, which then snowballed and certainly brought in this philanthropic support of the work that we're doing because our story resonated with people. And philanthropy is not easy, right? And I think Texas has an ecosystem of philanthropy that it's very unique, mm-hmm. but then also because we also have the backing of being in the big medical center. And if you have been in, the, in Houston, I mean, it's a medical powerhouse, right? Totally.
0: Yeah. I think Texas Medical Center is the largest, like, medical system in the world or something like that.
1: Yes. But surrounded by, unfortunately, at some level, that the third coast of the U.S., which is practically all Texas, Louisiana, Alabama, Florida, right? Uh We are. Also, the states that are afflicted by the most poverty, the most Mm. inequality, at the same time, the most diversity in population. And therefore, more the need to be in touch with our communities and do things that would really touch them. So it was hard. And I honestly also have to say that it wasn't hard scientifically. Because mm. we had been working in coronaviruses for 10 years. We, in fact, we knew that a RBD, which is a receptor-binding domain, little protein, when it's produced by a yeast, which, by the way, is also vegan, right? And I can tell you a little bit of why that's important. <laughs> yeah, it's vegan. And that we could formulate it accordingly, that it has the premise of safety that had, of course, evidence of efficacy. That was easy. That was easy for us to do. The very difficult, the challenging part was that financial support that we had to then uh, seek these alternative strategies, including philanthropy and diversify, certainly the way that we got money, but also be that leverage the resource. And so one of the things that we did is we totally fragmented the accountability of finances. So, for example... When we work with BioE or BioPharma, we don't say you have to pay us to do the work that you want us to help you with. Mm. We'll find money on our side to do our work. We will enable what you need by us seeking for those funds. Therefore, you don't have to add that cost to the consumer when you add it as an R&D cost. Mm. So we totally fragmented that. But we also told them that, however, we want in good faith that you do as much in your best effort to advance the program so that you also can look for funding on yourself. And so that agreement was pre-agreed, but then we really struggled at all levels to try to get funding, you know, Mm. and that's what, you know, now you know that we were not beneficiary in getting the billions of allocations from Operation Warp Speed Uh or even from CEPI or other agencies. Mm -hmm. And then the second hardest piece was the the policy piece, right? Mm. How to make these types of conventional technologies sit around the table uh, with those others that were really advocating for, you know, the only way that you can really move forward is with uh, shiny new toys, new technologies, because you need them to have them in a very speedy way, mm-hmm. but totally out not considering that those shiny new toys would really not reach the populations yeah. that would eventually need them. And,
0: and the shiny new toy is mRNA technology.
1: Yeah. And at some level, even the viral vector technology. Yeah. Remember, they're new toys, not necessarily because they may not have been researched before, mm-hmm. but it's because they had never showed prior precedent yeah. that they work. Yeah. So it was a big gamble when the world community said we are going to invest only in new toys yeah. for COVID specifically. What would have happened if they would not have worked?
0: Yeah. Right? Wow. I didn't want to think about that. And yeah. and we're not knocking mRNA technology. It's great. I'm inoculated with <laughs> yes. mRNA vaccines, but it's probably not going to be the solution for the world in terms of shrinking the vaccine equity gap. The vaccine is probably going to be similar to the one that you and your lab created, right?
1: Absolutely. And, and again, we also are certainly not averse on being innovative ourselves and bringing new technologies in our labs. In fact, we have had an RNA program prior to the coronavirus uh, field in Chagas. And so we like innovation, we like technologies, but we are very conscious of when are they ready to not only be deployed and deployed in the global South, right? So I think it's very important. And like you, fortunately, beneficiary of the Pfizer vaccine myself, thankfully. But, you know, I saw, you know, so many in many countries, even in my own country, that how long they had to wait before they could even get access to any vaccine.
0: Yeah. And even in countries that are more well off. My parents live in South Korea and it is, you know, it's a wealthier country, but my mom had to wait a really long time to get the vaccine. I was like, are you kidding me? Like there's so much technology and innovation in South Korea, but they were reliant upon these global companies to bring them the vaccine.
1: That's that same example of that follow on, right? That, you know, you have wonderful manufacturers in Korea, Mm -hmm. right? And they do fabulous work, but they were just relying on a big multinational to give them that technology. Why couldn't they create it on their own? I mean, you know, there's fabulous scientists in South Korea too, and they could have come up with. Reading our paper, they could have yeah. developed the RBD vaccine even without even calling us, right?
0: I know. I was like scratching my head. I was like, I can't believe it. Like, I can't believe like my mom's not vaccinated. It took her like months and months after I got my vaccine, like I think eight months afterward.
1: Yes. And that seems unfortunately what had therefore led to the appearance of all these variants.
0: Yeah. Can you talk about that?
1: You know, clearly the the variants arise from unvaccinated people in India, for Delta, you know, a lot of them, you know, from South Africa. And it's also a reflection of where we're doing the surveillance, right? Because, you know, this categorization of, you know, the variant of South Africa or the variant of, you know, of India, it's just because that's where we collected the samples. And, but who knows also what other variants may be arising in other regions. It's just that we also are not very good at surveilling Mm. Uh, the genomic uh, component, but clearly it's because you know the virus takes advantage of you know in populations that are either naive or are even if they may have been exposed that you know the natural infection in some people seems to be quite robust, but in many people it's not, and mm. so you have this hodgepodge of immunity, and it's just you know not not sufficient enough that with a natural infection you can really block the evolution of these viruses. Yeah. And and so I honestly say that if we could have had a little bit more intelligence in diversifying, not only the production portfolio of vaccines, but really ramping up the more equitable distribution, we may have been avoided Delta and we certainly could have avoided Omicron.
0: Wow, wow. You talked about how you design a vegan vaccine. What does that mean?
1: So, look, this actually started when, you know, years ago, where we started really building our quality system and recognizing that even at the level of academic research, we really need to document and trace every component that we use when we create these starter kits, right? Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of sensitivity with, you know, animal-derived products, you know, certainly, you know, human cells and whatnot, right? Right. And the option of selecting microbial fermentation microbes like yeast and bacteria, you know, occasionally we also use insect cells and whatnot. It's the fact that they bring an advantage if you can trace, you know, the reagents that also you use. Mm -hmm. Then we also started working with Saudi Arabia when we we did did a very interesting program to build capacity. And then we expanded in Malaysia and we realized that culturally... It's important to have cultural intelligence, right? You uh-huh. know, who are the products eventually going to be used for? Mm-hmm. And, you know, Islamic populations have their, you know, requests and we needed to have a halal vaccine. Well, halal vaccine is ideal if you're mm. using a yeast and it's a vegan process. Mm. And so then we started engineering our starter kits with very strict documentation that it doesn't contain any animal derived and certainly no pork derived, you know, uh, residual. And that's how, you know, Biopharma was very interested because now they're building an indigenous fully halal vaccine. That also, again, raises confidence and, um, you know, attends to the cultural needs that a population may have, whether it's religious beliefs, whether it's just fear, whether it's just a non-understanding. Honestly, you know, all the vaccines are safe. All, you know, all the reagents are traced, you know, whether you're using a, a mammalian system or you're using a cell that comes from a human derived cell. All of it is traced you know in theory everything is safe, but people have their own beliefs and sensitivity so you mm. need to give them options too right?
0: yeah. I love that story. I, I want to touch back on a theme that we mentioned before um, on how your background impacted your work and in your life and it kind of reminds me of you know, my own background, my, my parents are immigrants from Korea and I grew up without insurance in this country. And I remember how hard it was to access care and how expensive it was. And that's one reason why I went to emergency medicine, because we have a mandate to provide care to everyone, regardless of their ability to pay. So every day I take care of patients who are like my family. And I'm curious to know how you being born in Italy, than being raised in Honduras and now being a professor and scientist in this country, how that journey was impacted by your very diverse background.
1: Absolutely, and and I think that for me, my heritage, the experiences that I was exposed growing up, like you, right, we all have you know times of hardships. Our own parents, you know, grew up in many distinct. Times of hardship, you know, it's very important, you know. So I did grow up in Honduras, uh, where, yeah, I, I was born in Italy and I do remember a little bit, I think, like you, you know, I, I was in Italy until I was around eight years old. So I do remember, you know, Italy. Mm-hmm. And then that's that transition to a country like Honduras in the 70s, right? Which, of course, is not the same as today. Mm-hmm. But seeing how the people are at some level resilient but they're suffering right they're suffering because of the nature of um, no access to education or or an educational framework that you know doesn't really incentivize them but more importantly is the inability of having all the access to the essential medicines or even the infrastructure to get, you know, attended, you know, in health. Mm. And I think like here in the U.S. where I agree, you know, everybody here defaults to the emergency room because that's the only way they could get you know, even some preventive medicine yeah. at some level. Mm-hmm. You know, that is something that it's hard, right? You know, and it's one of the only ways where until you're really sick that you end up, you know, in the health system. So that had a, a real huge mark on me when, mm. not only of course because I was interested in in science. You know, I was always more interested in the area of the steam areas mm. in school. But when I decided to study in the university, I was a little torn. I was. Everybody when you're young you always say oh I want to be a doctor right uh-huh. I think that's the default yeah but there's so many especially other especially
0: if your parents are asian
1: <laughs> <laughs> I would say also if your parents are of hispanic origin of sort right you know there's this perception that only doctors are in the health you know there's so many other disciplines right yeah. that you know are important in health and but then when I went to the university I was just surprised by yes of course a doctor is very important But doctors rely on many other health disciplines to allow you to do your job, right? So having good tools to diagnose, having good tools of preventing and therefore treating is very important. And for you to develop those technologies, you have to understand the relationship of the pathogens with the host in, you know, whether it's a human host, an animal host, an environment, right? In Industrial, the water, you know, the climate. Mm -hmm. In Honduras, at least, the microbiologists are the ones who do that. Mm. Uh, and microbiologists even go beyond being those who help the physicians understand the, you know, the, the nature of the disease. We are the public health servants. Mm. You know, microbiologists are the ones who do the epidemiology. You know, we are the ones who help in the public health infrastructure as, you know, the those who do the outbreak investigations, you know, Mm. we are the hunters, right? You know, because we understand the pathogens, we know where and how to hunt them. And we want to learn from them so that we can find them these solutions. So I really got fascinated with microbiology. But then, believe it or not, and this was in Philadelphia when I was doing my postdoc Uh in Philly, is that I got a little frustrated of how to indeed enable my understanding of the microbes of me knowing that, yes, I want to develop vaccines, and I want to develop drugs, and I want to develop diagnostics, but how do you really make them uh, happen? Hmm. So I needed to learn about the business of how to develop these products. Uh And in Philly, you know, there's an enormous ecosystem of biopharmaceuticals. And then I stumbled in my walk from Center City to University City, crossing through Jefferson and crossing uh-huh. through Temple. You know, they have all these downtown campuses. Yeah. And I said, you know what, maybe as a hobby, I'll go get some business classes at Temple. And so I got into a Temple <laughs> business program in strategic management. Uh-huh. And surprise, surprise, all my professors were Most coming from the pharmaceutical sector Mm. because they feed from, you know, those who work in, you know, the companies that are in the Philly area, in the New Jersey area. So I said, aha, this is exactly what I want to do, right? I want to be the scientist, understanding the microbes, you know, creating these technologies, but learning how to then bring them with a business model to be able to be produced developed and accessible and that's how i became pretty much
0: i love that story thank you for sharing that uh, i have a thousand more questions but i want to be sensitive to your time one question i love to ask my guests is what's the role that creativity played in your work and career
1: a huge role. Um, and I honestly have to say, it was an interplay between courage and curiosity. Hmm. Because sometimes we are not incentivized to be curious until something bad happens to us or something that brings out the courage out of us to then, therefore, say, you know, I am not going to accept a no. And therefore I have to be creative and how else can I do it to open the doors or to make my ideas move forward, right? So creativity was very important and creativity, not only scientifically, but again, understanding that then I needed different skills to incentivize my creativity Mm -hmm. in the way that I speak. Therefore, engagement, science, communication, we as scientists always are afraid to talk, outside of our scientific jargon. And that was difficult. I got a lot of training, you know, with institutions such as the American Association for Advancement of Science. I'm a, a fellow of one of their science engagement programs because I was afraid to speak to you, for example, right? Or how do you talk to a politician or how do you speak in the media, right? You know, it's hard. How do you translate, you know, our very sophisticated concepts in science to the layman terms? Um, So that was something I needed to learn and just, you know, again, throw myself in something that I was not very comfortable with and learn how to be comfortable with it, right? And then recognize that science alone is not enough, that you need this whole, you know, diplomacy process, right? Mm -hmm. You know, engaging and learning the legal jargon, the ethics, the engineering, you know, and economics, right? You know, so now I, I work more course, I work with scientists and we have a big team of scientists that, you know, we empower themselves to also have their own creativity and courage. But I look myself now as um, being more that diplomatic person, right? The Mm. one who engages into all these consortia and speak with all these um, groups and learn of how to work with all these other disciplines. And at some level, fascinated by the legal infrastructure and framework fascinated by the business and i think you know that's how i ended up you know fitting in this mm. whole ecosystem yeah
0: well thank you for sharing your inspiring story uh, congrats on your nomination for the nobel prize that's so exciting i was so looking forward to this uh, conversation o- honored to have you on the show and thank you for your work on decreasing the vaccine equity gap in the world
1: Thank you, Bon. It's just been a pleasure.
0: I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Maria Elena Patazzi. You can find her tweeting at M-E-B-O-T-T-A-Z-Z-I and sign up for our newsletter. Every week, we are going to send you some cool stuff to read. You can find the link in the podcast show notes. Reach out to me on Twitter and Instagram. On Twitter, I can be found at B-O-N-K-U. On Instagram, at D-R-B-O-N-K-U. Design Lab was produced by Rob Puglisi. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston. And the cover design by Eden Liu. See you next week.